Grab a copy of God's Word and turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, our text this morning is verses 12 through 17, but as we get started, I'd actually like to begin in verse 1, reading our our passage uh, as a whole. Uh, Began this uh, little stint a few weeks back. We began in verse 1, looking at verses 1 and 4, and what we saw was a life with Christ. And this life with Christ has been raised with Christ, brought from death to life, salvation. And in that life, there are new new ways of living. And he briefly states and commands in verse 1 and 2 to seek the things that are above and to set your minds on things that are above. And he concludes that little thought with our hidden lives in Christ. It speaks to our union with Christ Jesus, that we are one with him. Then he gets very practical in verse 5 through 11, and really the theme of that is putting off the old man. And here in our passage, we see more of the new man. Last week I told you I entitled the sermon, The Old and New Man, Part 1. This will be The Old and New Man, Part 2. But we're really looking at the new man. But let's begin by rereading our passage that we looked at a few weeks ago, beginning in verse 1. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him, and glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And then these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on them as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I want us to look at four things this morning, looking at really this new man, four very important things that describe the new man. First, the new man is chosen by God. 
First, the new man is chosen by God. We see that in verse 12. Next, I want us to look at the new man is to put on a new heart, which is really verses 12 through 14. Thirdly, I want us to see that the new man is guided by Christ in 15 and 16. And then lastly, and really a summary of this whole passage, the new man is thankful in verse 17. So the new man is chosen by God. Paul begins to describe, he says, put on then as God's chosen ones. A very important word that we don't just pass over. What he's doing in the midst of the application is both giving commands but also declaring truth. That's always goes hand in hand. Doctrine and practice go hand in hand. We should never elevate one above the other. But they go hand in hand, and Paul does that by stating as God's chosen ones. This word chosen means to be chosen out of or selected. The Greek word there is electos. You might hear it, elect. And that's the word that's often translated in many of our English English Bibles. But here in the ESV, we have God's chosen ones. This is Paul speaking about God choosing these individuals for a particular purpose purpose he says they are holy and beloved holy and beloved things that that describe the new man chosen by God to be holy and beloved to hold to be holy means very simply set apart or separate has the idea of being consecrated for a service to God other words are devout or dedicated godly the man has been chosen by god to be a holy devout servant out of this world called out of this world to live in a particular way he is also described as beloved which describes god's high regard and love for his people so the new man is chosen by god problem is naturally none of us are holy and beloved. We're not naturally holy people. We're contrary to that. Paul speaks about this in Colossians 1. He says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind. That describes us naturally. He says, Those of you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now, that's Christ, reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you, oh, here it is, holy and blameless and above reproach for, before him. God has chose, he has selected to save some to a life of holiness and purity, to live in a particular way, to be a light in this world. This is not a very popular doctrine this is the doctrine of election a a topic that's often set aside we actually had a Sunday school curriculum that set aside a whole chapter dedicated to this doctrine because it's a hot topic naturally we don't like the ideas that come from this but we should know that this doctrine of election is not isolated in scripture it's actually something that's all throughout Timothy George a professor college in the South, he says this, the, sub, the doctrine of election is at once one of the most central 
and one of the most misunderstood teachings of the Bible. As its most basic level, election refers to the purpose or plan of God whereby he has determined to affect his will. And in particularly, in our context, salvation. We love to know that God is a sovereign God that reigns. And he reigns over all things, and especially when he calls his people to himself. This is a doctrine that's actually covered throughout Scripture. Going into the Old Testament, we see that he's constantly calling men out of others to follow him. He calls Abraham. He calls Jacob. He calls Moses. He calls David. But he reveals himself in a particular way, in a special way to a people, the Israelites. He chose them or elected them. If you turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 and 11, we see that God's election, God's choosing, when he chooses, it's out of love and not merit. Out of love and never on the basis of merit. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, is where we'll begin. Through verse 11, he says, For you are a holy, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because of the Lord. The Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. To a thousand generation he repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. God calls a people to himself. He even says it. It's not because you were the largest that I said I needed you. There's no merit. It's not that even that God looked down the corridor of time to say, oh, this Israelite people will be faithful to me. Because if you know your Bible, you know that is not the case. We're talking about a faithless people that constantly went after other gods. But instead, he chose them out of his goodness, out of his love, and out of his mercy, and chose them to a task, to be obedient, to be holy, to be a light to the surrounding nations. To keep his commandments, to keep his rules, to obey them. That was the intent but this doctrine of election continues in the New Testament. And we could look at many places, but I'd ask you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. And I would just allow the scripture to communicate the wonderful truth of this doctrine, the doctrine of election. In Ephesians 1, 3 through 12, this, this theme goes throughout all of scripture. Even Peter uh, speaks about it in 1 Peter 2. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his own possessions, 
that you may have proclaimed the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What we see is that God chooses a people for himself, and he does it still today, calling out people from darkness into his marvelous light. Paul, in probably one of the sweetest passages in Ephesians, in verses 3 through 12, he writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through him and through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which, which he has blessed us and the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, and all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heavens and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. I hope you're seeing it. It's very clear that God is a God that is over and rules over all things, and especially his people. He's not taken by surprise. He knows every heart and every soul. He's creator of all, but in his goodness and in his kindness, a mystery that our minds will never truly comprehend. He chooses some unto salvation. The new man is chosen by God. The new man is chosen by God not to boast in being called to salvation. That's not the case. But to be humble before the Lord. The, the doctrine of election only elevates God and brings love and appreciation to the individual. So why? Why would Paul place this here? We've read two passages that speaks about election. And in both instances, it speaks about called to holiness. Called to holiness. And that's where he's going to keep going with this in our passage. We are called to a new life called out of the old man and to put on the new man. Our Baptist faith and message, our confession that we hold to as a church body, in Article 5 it states, Election is the gracious purpose of God, according to which he regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. It is consistent with the free agency of man and comprehends all the means in connection with the end. It is a glorious display of God's sovereign goodness and is, and is infinite, wise, holy, and unchangeable. It excludes boasting and promotes humility. This is a beautiful doctrine that is rich and vast and very important to the life of a believer. God has chosen you to walk in a new life. 
Many of us have, have lived our lives in, in the public school arena. You have opportunities to, to be on teams, whether it's dodgeball or kickball. But there is something sweet about being picked to be on a team. Especially a guy my size with my lack of athletic ability. Every time I was chosen, and I wasn't the last chosen, I was always thankful. God has called you, dear believer, to a life of holiness. To be a part of his team. To live in a way that is right and good, that reflects the work that has happened in your life. Praise is the true response. I'm going to do something that I'm probably going to regret, but I'm going to ask you to take your hymnal in front of you and turn to hymn 289. I'm not going to sing. You're not going to sing. I want you to turn to hymn 289. There's praise that accompanies this doctrine, thankfulness in the heart of a believer. Maybe you're aware of this hymn, but this hymn on page 289, My Lord, I did not choose you. Very sweet hymn, and I'd rather you be able to put your eyes on it with me as I read this. My Lord, I did not choose you, for that could never be. My heart would still refuse you had you not chosen me. You took the sin that stained me. You cleansed me, made me new. Of of old you have ordained me that I should live in you. Unless your grace has called me and taught my opening mind, the world, the world would have enthralled me to heavenly glories blind. My heart knows none above you. For your rich grace I thirst. I know that if I love you, you must have loved me first. A beautiful and sweet hymn reminding the response is praise to a good God, a loving God, a gracious God to call us unto salvation. The new man is first chosen by God, chosen by God. The new man is also to put on a new heart. Look again with me at Colossians 3, verse 12 and 14. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones. Holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. He already began in, in verse 10 to speak about this new garment that we're to put on. Putting on and putting off. We have the negative in the previous passage in verses 5 through 9. And we have the positive beginning in verse 10 through 17 to put on in the positive. It's literally to clothe. And, and really the word has urgency behind it. If you've been called by God to salvation, chosen by God, you were called to live an urgent life of putting on the new man. Putting on a new Heart, And this is actually not uh, an isolated term for Paul. Paul uses this term quite a bit in Romans 13, 12, put on the armor of light. Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 3, 27, put on Christ. Ephesians 4, 24, put on the new self. Ephesians 6, 11, put on the whole armor of God. Ephesians 6, 14, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Colossians 3.10, put on the new self. 1 Thessalonians 5.8, put on the breastplate of faith and love. 
The new man puts on a new heart. It's a new heart. It's a heart. And the reason I, I describe it in that way is he begins with compassionate hearts or a heart of compassion. But that's really what's at hand here. Just as the heart is, is the place in which sin blossoms, when the gospel takes hold of a Christian life, it's also the place that the gospel teals up our souls so that we can act in obedience. We obey from the heart. The heart, I'm glad that we, we don't translate it. Many translations, such as the KJV, translates uh, a heart of compassion as the bowels of mercy. And during the Old Testament times, it was just the bowels. It was the liver. It was inside you. We speak to the heart. speaks to the seat of emotions. Now, this list that we have here, it could be compared to the fruit of the Spirit. Actually, many correlate with the fruit of the Spirit. And with that, it's interesting that these attributes, these virtues, these traits that we are to put on, clothe ourselves with, are often used in other places to describe the qualities and attributes of God. So let's begin with the first attribute, compassion. To have compassion is to show mercy and concern with the implication of sensitivity. It'd be compared to having compassion and mercy for the sick, for the hurting, for the dying. In the time that Paul would write this, we're not talking about the same society and culture that we live in. Where the, the poor were unhealthy. Where if you were dying, it could be very serious to care for you and meet those needs. If you were in jail, you had needs that be, needed to be met. If you wanted to be clothed and fed. A compassionate heart, one with compassion and mercy, meets those needs. Ultimately, God is the standard for these needs. For, or actually, he's the standard in how we are to act out. These traits, 2 Corinthians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. We're to have compassion like God has compassion. Next he lists kindness. Kindness is an event or activity which is useful or benevolent. Another word that's often translated, goodness. It's kindness towards the helpless, those in need. Titus 3, 4 through 5, we were once in need. It says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. He's the standard for kindness. When we were helpless, he came and helped us, met our needs with salvation in Christ Jesus. Third, he says, humility. Humility was actually a word that was, was put aside in this world, in this, in this culture. It was not, it was not a, a word or an attribute that many in this Greek world would have wanted applied to them. But the Christian faith throws everything upside down. We're called to humility. It's without arrogance, lowliness in thinking. It's best best explained in Philippians 2.3 when Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. It's recognizing your own weakness 
but also recognizing God's power. He goes on to meekness or gentleness, as some translation has. It's a, it's a behavior, it's a contrast between hardness and dealing with others. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. He's the example. Fifth in this first little bit is patience. State of emotional calm in the face of misfortune without complaint or irritation. You've heard of those with a short temper. This is the exact opposite. Patience has a long, a long fuse here. A long temper. Patience. Who's the standard for these? God is. I mean, when you have a task before you, you always like example. I don't like, I don't like instructions when I'm building something. But if I'm going to have it, I'd rather a picture. Rather to see someone else has done this before. Don't give me some words and I'm not sure or can believe you. I could see the picture on the box, but I want to see pictures here. We have one that's given us a picture of what it looks like to walk in compassion in kindness, in humility, in meekness, in patience. And that's Jesus Christ. That's God the Father in demonstrating how he interacts and engages with his people. He's demonstrated. He's set the standard for that. He keeps on going. He says, and, and really they flow out of patience, but uh, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. Bearing with one another. It speaks of patience. It's in the sense of enduring possible difficulty. He says, though, even those that you have a complaint against. When it means a complaint, it means you have, a, you have a reason to be upset. You have grounds for accusation. So there's that, but he says, you're to forgive. Forgiveness. Oh, that's a hard one. The actual Greek uh, word for forgiveness has the word grace in it. It can be translated in our English Bibles in a couple of ways. It can mean to cancel a debt. Jesus uses it when he's uh, teaching on a woman who's brought to him in adultery in Luke 7. He says a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled, forgave the debt of both. Which of them will love him more? It can also be something that is given graciously. Paul uses that in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It's forgiveness. It's either a canceling of debt or it's a giving something that is not truly deserved. And really, this is probably one of the most pronounced marks of a true believer is forgiveness. It is easy to harbor anger and bitterness towards someone. It's easy to dodge people in the hallways. It's easy not to go to Thanksgiving or Christmas. It's easy to stay in your little cubicle and not go visit the neighbor next to you. It's easy to harbor unforgiveness, but it's not easy to forgive. Actually, true forgiveness is a supernatural thing that is only made possible by a supernatural uh, example, and that is Jesus Christ. Look at what he says. Here's your motivation. 
You're to forgive others as the Lord has forgiven you. What an example. I mean, he's always outdone me in that. I'll never come close to forgiving as much as God has forgiven me in Christ Jesus. Nor will you. That's our example. He says to forgive. And then he rounds this all off, this new heart that should be put on with love. With love. He says, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The active love of God. This is agape love that he has for his son and his people. The active love that his people are to have for God and each other. He's our standard. Ephesians 2, 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us. That's, that's what I'm aiming for. Love, which binds this all together. It says perfect harmony. This is another way of saying maturity. It's what keeps us all tied together is actually love. Like we can be kind to one another, but if we're not doing it in love, then we're not truly bonded together. John MacArthur comments on this. He says, love is the most important moral quality in the believer's life. For it is the very glue that produces unity in the church. Believers never enjoy mutual fellowship through compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, or patience. They will not bear with each other or forgive each other unless they love one another. And it's agape love. It's unconditional. Our supply is not in ourselves; it's outside of ourselves. It's in Jesus Christ. It's like, well, I, that's all the love I can give to this person. No. It's not your love. It's the love that's flowing out of you. This is the bond that keeps us together. So we must ask ourselves, does my life permeate a life that is marked by compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiving, and loving? And this, is, this one another is not your family member or your neighbor. It's your church family. It's your brother and sister in Christ. That's the one another it's applied to. So to be obedient, because this is a command to put on, you must be amongst the brothers and sisters in Christ. Actually, to be faithful to scriptures, it doesn't warrant a life of a hermit. Or to neglect the body of Jesus Christ. For us to fulfill this, we must be amongst one another. Forgiving one another. I mean, here, here's the thing. He says, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against someone, forgiving them. Listen, if you're amongst the body, you're going to be given many opportunities to need to forgive. Right? Forgiveness. Came across a few questions to ask yourself. Because forgiveness is such an important thing. It really hinders so much. But it also demonstrates our true new nature in Christ Jesus. Here's a few questions that you might ask yourself 
when considering if you have unforgiveness in your heart. When you think of that person, are you still angry, bitter, or resentful? Number two, do you have a subtle desire to see that person pay for what they did to you? Number three, do you have a secret desire for revenge, which says something like, I wouldn't mind if some hurt happened to the person who hurt me. Number four, do you find my, do I find myself telling others how the other person has hurt me? This is hard. Forgiveness is not an easy thing. You might have been hurt in a very terrible way. Forgiveness doesn't mean that the relationship will return to the way it was. But in Christ Jesus, we're called to forgive one another as we've been forgiven by the Lord. That's the standard before us. So the new man is chosen by God. The new man is to put on a new heart. And the new man is guided by Christ. Verses 15 and 16, we see this. The new man is guided by Christ. The new man is not like the old man. The old man is ruled by the deeds of the flesh. The old man follows the prince of the power of the air of this world. The old man walks a life in the darkness. The new man, though, now walks in the light. The new man is actually guided by the light, Christ Jesus. And he's guided in two ways. We see two very important commands. The first is rule and the next dwell. Look at verse 15 with me. Paul writes, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. We're to allow the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts. This peace of Christ. Peace means to join or bind together that which has been separated. Oftentimes, peace is described in the negative, such as to be without trouble or to have no worries. But this peace is given to Christ. And what is Christ's peace? Oh, it's the one that brings us back together with, with God. There's no hostility. Once we were alienated, now we've been brought near. Once we were hostile enemies of God, now we have been called the children of God and love him. That's the peace of Christ. It could also be explained as this. Uh, in, in regards to the ruling here. To rule means to have the command to control someone based upon correct judgment and decision. This better makes sense to us. It's like a referee or an umpire. I like that. I like baseball. I mean, it's, it, you're, the peace of Christ is to rule whether that is a strike or whether it's a ball. Whether you're safe or whether you're out. Whether it's fair or it's out of bounds. The peace of Christ rules in our hearts. Rules in our hearts. How does it do this? First, by reminding us, the daily reminder that we are bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. The daily reminder that I can go before the throne of God and lift up my concerns, my needs, my troubles. That I can go before the throne and I can praise him and acknowledge him. 
The peace of God, it's, uh, the peace of Christ is very similar to what we memorized just a few weeks back in Philippians 4, verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It guards us. It protects us. But this peace of Christ also is what unifies us. He says, and you were called in one body. The peace of Christ is what reminds us that, hey, we're a people of peace now amongst one another. Often the scriptures speak to the unity of the body of Christ. If you've been in the church for any time, you know that, that, that troubles arise. Divisions happen. But it's the peace of God and it actually demonstrates the work of God in the life of a church body. When we're unified around the word of God, the gospel of God, the peace of Christ rules us. It's what rules what is fair and what's right, what's good, and what we should do. We live in harmony with one another, peace with one another. Second, how the man, the new man is guided by Christ is the word of God dwells richly in him. The word of God simply, or the word of Christ, and we could insert the word of God. This is scripture, ultimately. The command dwell means to remain in a place defined physiologically, psychologically, or spiritually, or to live in, indwelling, indwelling here. It's pertaining to that which exists in a large amount that richly described there. I love that. It says, allow the word of Christ to dwell, take up habitat, dwell in you richly. Richly. You can have too much cake. Can't have that always dwell in you richly. You can have too much TV. You can have too much relaxing and leisure and entertainment. But you can never have too much of the word of Christ. Let it dwell in you richly. One commentator, commentator on this says this, The word dwell means to keep house. We should live in the word of God like we live in our homes. We are familiar with our home where all the closets are, where we have items stored. We must thoroughly acquaint ourselves with the word. The word should become so familiar to us that we know it like the back of our hand. The idea is to let the word of God dwell in, inside and live at home in our lives. The word of God needs to inhabit us. This is more than just reading the Bible. God wants us to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts and the word of Christ dwell in our hearts and dwell richly in abundance, large amounts, the word of God, the word of Christ. But he goes on. He says it's to teach, which is the instruction. of and can be informal or formal. And also the admonition, admonishing, provide instruction to correct behavior. That's what the word of God does. We read the word of God on our own at our homes. We gather together to hear the word of God preached and taught, and we allow it to teach us, to correct us, to inform us, to direct us, to lead us, to drive us, to motivate us. But then he also adds singing. We sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's why we have a standard for what we sing. We don't sing what's most popular. It must be able to teach, 
and admonish. Therefore, it must be rooted, and it in itself must dwell in the word of Christ. It should be important to us. And they should, that's the purpose, the purpose of gathering and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. They're meant to, for us to gather and lift up our voices to the Lord, but it's also meant to teach you, to correct you. I may just turn to a hymn to, to show us this wonderful truth of the doctrine of election. It should have value in our, in our week. We should utilize these, these songs. So do I allow the peace of Christ to rule in my heart? Is it directing me what I should think and what I should do and how I should live? Is the peace of Christ ruling amongst us? Are we in peace with one another? And does the word of God dwell in me richly? Am I reading God's word? We, we, we say this all the time. We have a little booklet we've been producing for the last several years. We want you in the word of God. One of my favorite stories comes from Donald Whitney's book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. It tells of a man in Kansas City that was actually injured in a very severe accident. His face was disfigured. He uh, lost his eyesight as well as both hands. Whitney writes, He had just become a Christian when the accident happened. And one of the biggest or the greatest disappointment was the fact that he could no longer read the Bible. Then he heard of a lady in England who read Braille with her lips. Hoping to do the same, he sent for some books of Bible Braille, and he discovered that the nerve endings in his lips had been too badly damaged to distinguish the characters. One day, as he brought one of the Braille pages to his lips, his tongue happened to touch a few of the raised characters, and he could feel them. Like a flash, he thought, I can read the Bible using my tongue. At the time of the book, this man read through the entire Bible with his tongue four times. That's kind of dry that I want with the Word of God. I'm not going to be hindered by anything. I need it. I want it. I desire it. Tragedy can come. I can lose physical senses, my hands, my eyes, even touch in my lips, but I want the Word of God to dwell in me like this man. I hope that's your longing as well. I hope the words that we sing, the songs that we sing, they penetrate your heart outside of the service. Lastly, the new man is thankful. Really, in conclusion to this whole section, beginning in verse 1 all the way to 17, and whatever you do, verse 17, in word or do, deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I mean, you can ask, okay, does this include uh, my work? Yes. Does this include my parenting? Yes. Does this include my schooling? Yes. Does this include my playtime? Yes. What about my leisure? Yes. My vacation? Yes. Whatever you do in, do in word and deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Willing to stamp his name to that thought or to that conversation or to that time sitting in your chair watching that, that show or movie. Be willing, be willing to give thanks in every 
circumstance, applying it to the name of Jesus Christ, living in a way that reflects that. That's our aim. He'll continue on and he'll look at the household and, and work and other things. But ultimately, our lives, we should check every single deed, every single thought, and be sure that it is worthy to give to God in praise and thankfulness. It's what we're called to do. So as we consider and kind of close this and considering taking off the old man and the act of putting on the new man, I'm doing this out of a heart of thankfulness knowing that I've been chosen by God, that I've been called to put on a new heart, that I'm being guided by Christ, and ultimately I do that through thankfulness. The opposite of thankfulness is grumbling and complaining. Hopefully that doesn't classify your, your life. The things that you think, the things that you say, your conversations in the hallway, Hopefully, it's a heart of thankfulness. The new man is chosen by God. The new man is to put on a new heart. The new man is guided by Christ. And the new man is thankful. My prayer is that you can give praise to God for the new life in Christ. And if it's you in the room that you don't have new life, I pray today that you would come in faith and repentance in Jesus Christ, knowing that you can have new life in him let's pray this morning father you are so good as we looked at a list of attributes that should truly define the new man in christ jesus we're thankful that they ultimately are exhibited by you as compassionate kind father you are gentle you are patient you are forbearing father you are also forgiving and you have forgiven us in christ jesus we thank you for that wonderful gift of salvation but father as the text calls us it calls us to action it calls us to live in a new way it calls us to daily put off put to death and daily put on and it's in these practices it's in the daily routine of this that father we're enriched by the peace of your son jesus christ that were, uh, Father, dwelled by the word of your, your son, Jesus Christ, by your word. And I pray that these habits would be, uh, Father, evident in the life of the believers of this church. Father, I pray that we be faithful to live in a way that honors you, that reflects our thanks, thankfulness for the work done in us. And Father, yet I want to pray it again for the soul that's in this room, whether young or old, that is still living and bound by the old man, the flesh, I pray that you would release them, and Father, that you would call them to your Son, Jesus Christ, in faith and repentance. We love you and pray this in Christ's name. Amen.